Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkeno, our Father, our King, Lord, we're grateful tonight that you have brought us into your presence once again, that you are inviting us to sit and to learn of you, sit and uh, soak up your spirit, to sit and to gaze at your presence. Lord, we thank you for sending us your Son, for sending us your Spirit, for preserving your word and causing us to be raised up as people of the living God. We thank you for the uh, opportunity to come together as like-minded individuals, uh, sharing your words, sharing your truths um, with one another so that we can strengthen one another, so we can pray for one another, uh, so that we can challenge one another. Um, Lord, we ask that you will uh, send us forth as your ambassadors, that you will equip us, um, that you will give us the tools needed to be um, witnesses for your great name, building up your kingdom, uh, honoring Yeshua, uh, upholding Torah, and um, sharing the good news with those who uh, desperately need to hear this. Um, Lord, we know that the world around us is not getting any better, it's getting worse. And yet we're not afraid, because you've not given us a like it says in Second Timothy 1, around verse 7, uh, you've not given us a spirit of fear, Lord, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And so we thank you that you have um, raised us up for such a time as this, uh, to be lights, even in this very, very dark world around us. Be with each and every student who has joined us tonight. Um, cause them to be engaged in the study uh, for the sake of honoring Yeshua, uh, for remembering the words that he has left us, and for becoming um, better disciples. And that includes the teacher. Thank you for the material. Thank you for the book of Galatians and for the Apostle Paul. And uh, thank you for allowing us to study. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuvah in Thornton, Colorado. If you're ever out our way in Colorado, stop in and join us in uh, Thornton, north of Denver. We meet um, every Saturday evening, Shabbat. In fact, uh, Saturday mornings, uh, Saturday afternoons, I should say. And uh, we'd love to have you come on out. Now, I'm not actually there in Colorado. I'm, I'm actually in South Korea. And uh, this is where the Lord has moved me, for, and I've been here for the last three years. So I ask you to uh, bear with me as I join you from overseas. 
We meet every Tuesday night here on um, the Galatians Study uh, online, and we're meeting on Skype. So if you've got a computer, a working computer, or a smartphone that's got the Skype app, um, you're certainly welcome to join us. Uh, we used to meet Tuesday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., but we're going to move the study, and it's going to move to either Friday night or Saturday night. I haven't made that decision yet, but I'll make that decision this week, and then I'll let you all know. Um, but again, meet with us each week via Skype from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. live, and we meet for about an hour. And then after the hour discussion, we open the microphone up for uh, comments and questions from anyone in the class, um, talk about the material, or just uh, uh, share uh, other comments with one another for about 15, 20 minutes. So if you do join us live on Tuesday nights, um, you're certainly welcome to stay for the after session, the after um, lesson chat and um, just share with the other students. Share what insights you've learned. Um, um, I, I'm fond of saying that I learn much from my teachers, more from my peers, but I learn most from my students. And so um, I'd love to have you join us. Well, we're plugging along. Let me uh, date stamp this recording. Tonight, as it so happens to be, is August the 27th. 2016 and we're on week 38 of the of the uh, study and um, one last uh, announcement real quick and then we'll jump into the liturgy um, the pattern of of a meeting goes like this we meet for 10 weeks and then we take a break for two weeks and then we meet for 10 weeks and take a break for two weeks etc etc so that's how our semesters are broken down <clears throat> so we're approaching a semester break once we reach week 40 We'll take a semester break for two weeks. That'll give me a chance to um, go back and, and uh, revise anything or make corrections or answer emails or things like that. It'll give you a chance to go back and um, pick up on studies you might have missed. And we meet for, uh, we'll take a break for two weeks and then we'll just pick up again with week 41 after that. So um, be aware of that. If, you'd, if you're not able to join us live each week and you still want to follow the studies, you're certainly welcome to head on over to my website at tatesatora.com. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com and click on the link near the top of the page that says Galatians Commentary. Scroll down to the page and you'll find a link for the PDF document and you'll find links for each of the uh, um, web page versions as well as information about the live study that we do each week. Um, and there's also a subscription option if you want to become a member of the uh, Galatian study, in other words, an enrolled student. Uh, membership is free, enrollment's free, I don't charge anything, uh, but what membership will do is allow you to receive the weekly show notes, the weekly um, um, chapter section that we're going to be covering, and it'll also allow you to um, be notified whenever I upload the audio commentary, uh, the audio version, you know, a few days after I edit it. So I encourage you to head on out to my website and um, click on the Galatians link and subscribe, become a member, and join us as well. All right, without further ado, um, let me read a blessing for the uh, Torah study. Uh, I'm just using this generic, general Torah study blessing since we're in a summary section of our uh, commentary, and this kind of fits the idea of a, of a general summary-type blessing for me. And also, since this is Saturday night, which is what most of you recognize as Havdalah, then I'm also going to read a uh, Hob, general Habdallah blessing as well. So let's read this blessing um, 
for the Torah, I'm going to read the English. I'm sorry, I'm going to read the... Uh, yeah, I think I'll read the English first, and then I'll uh, go back out and read the Hebrew for you. The English of this blessing says, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring... And the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and watch, and uh, may the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's go back and read that same blessing in Hebrew. It reads, Baruch atah onai lochenu melech haolam asherer kidshanu b'mitzvotayv v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah v'ha'arev na adonai lochenu et divrei Torah tacha b'finu ufiot amchabet Yisrael v'nicheh anachnu v'tzeetzeinu v'tzeetzei amchabet Yisrael Kulano yodesh mecha velomde torteka lishma. Baruchata donai ham la made hatora la mo Yisrael. Baruchata donai lohino melaka olama shere baharbanu bekulha min venatan lanu et torato. Baruchata adonai notain hatora. Iverecha donai ve yishmarecha, ya erer adonai panai vilecha vuhunecha, yis adonai panai vilecha, ve yasim lecha shalom. And Let's read the um, this uh, hab, the, the Habdallah blessing, uh, what we call the Hamab deal, which is um, a ceremony that's usually uh, reserved for after the Sabbath is drawing to a close. In essence, it's a prayer or blessing that recognizes that God separates the Sabbath from the other six days. He makes the Sabbath holy and he sanctifies it. And by doing so, by this, this word sanctified in English corresponds to the Hebrew word um, kadosh or kadash, which means to make something holy or to set it apart. And in so doing so, it's sanctified. And so Habdallah is the demarcation blessing to mark off the Sabbath from the mundane six days of the week. So let's read that blessing as well. Um, I'll read the, the, just like before, I'll read the English first and then I'll read the Hebrew. Uh, the English reads, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who distinguishes between the holy and the profane, between light and darkness, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day and the six days of work. Blessed are you, Lord, who distinguishes between the holy and the profane. And the Hebrew reads, Baruch Olam, Hamavdil Bein Kodesh, Lacho Bein Or Lachoshech, Bein Yisrael Laamin, Bein Yom Hashvi'i, let me scroll down, let me start over there, Bein Yom Hashvi'i, Lasheshet Yemei Hamaseh, Baruch Adonai, Hamavdil Bein Kodesh, Lachol Amin. And again, this is just a blessing to indicate that uh, Sabbath has drawn to a close since this is Saturday night for most of you. I uh, hope that blessing uh, was a benefit to you. You can find that blessing, by the way, um, in just about every standard Jewish prayer book that you can buy.
All right, let's read some uh, liturgy from the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures. And I've been using this passage out of the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, because of its relevance and centrality to the book of Galatians for a general discussion. Many commentators will identify verses 16, uh, 15 and 16 uh, of chapter 2 in Galatians as one of the central arguments of Paul's um, work there in Galatians. Indeed, it forms some of the theology that we're going to be covering tonight forms a central hermeneutic key, in my opinion, to uh, interpreting the book and applying the book. So let's just read the uh, ESV English, and then I'll read the uh, the corresponding Greek for you out of the, um, uh, I think it's the Nestle 1904 Greek version. So the English says, But when um, Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, uh, verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, We ourselves are justified, I'm sorry, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Tonight we're going to be talking about works of the law in our summary section, so let's look at the, um, let's look at the underlying Greek behind that same passage. Starting in verse 11 again, we read, Hate de elthen, kephas eis antiochian, kata prosopon, auto, antesen, I'm sorry, antesen, hati kata gnosmenos, gnosmenos, in verse 12, protu gar elthentinas apo Jacobu, metoton ethnon sunesthien, hate de elthon, hupastelen, Kai aforitsen huitan fobuminas tus ek peritomes. Verse 13. Kai sunapek auto kai hoi yoipoi loipoi yudaioi. That's a tongue twister for me. Start verse 13 again. Kai sunapek kristesen, auto kai hoi loipoi yudaioi. Haste kai. Barnabas, sunapekte, auton te hypocrisy. Verse 14. Alhati edon hati, uk ortobudusen, prostein alethian tu euangeliu, epunto kefa emprosten, panton e su yadoyes huparcon ethnicos, kai uk, kai uk judaikas zespota ethne anankadzes judaitsein. And that's a question. Paul's asking, why are you compelling the Gentiles to uh, Judaize, Judaizane, to live like Jews or live as Jews? And then the heart of the uh, question or the heart of the argument is this verse 15 and 16 part. Hemes fuse judaioi, kaiuk ex ethnon hamartaloi, edatis de hati uk 
dikaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu in me diapistios Christu Jesu, kai hemes eis Christon Jesun epistusimen, hina dikaiothomen ek pistios Christu kai uk ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u dikaiothesitai pasa sarx. And that'll be our Greek liturgy for tonight. And as I uh, pointed out, we're going to be talking about this phrase, works of the law, which um, the Greek has ergonamu, and it shows up three times here in verse 16 alone, uh, knowing that, knowing nevertheless that not is justified a man by ergonamu, works of the law, or works of law. We don't even really have to have the uh, the article there, the, the Greek article, the. Um, we can just have works of law. And then he, Paul goes on to contrast uh, faith in Christ, diapistios Christu, Jesu, with this works of the law in, in order to leverage dikaiosune, uh, justified, or in this case dikaiothomen, that we might be justified, um, or dikaiothesitai over here, that we might be justified. And really, the, the central question as we move into our study, the central question from... The vantage point of the first century, the big question was, how does one become justified? How does one become justified? And in the central view of the uh, Judaisms of Paul's day, as best as we can gather from reading historical documents and corroborating the information against the uh, what we read about in the Bible, what we can gather is that uh, first century Israel sought to answer the question, who can be justified in God's sight, by by um, paralleling that question with who can be a covenant member. Indeed, as we're going to begin to see as we study works of the law, from the first century Jewish uh, perspective, from their understanding of their own scriptures, covenant membership was synonymous with justification. Therefore, um, if one focused on how to become a covenant member, essentially one could achieve justification or being counted among the righteous. So... That that that's going to be the concept that we're going to talk about tonight. So, and this is really self-explanatory. Most of the commentary that I'm going to read tonight is self-explanatory. It's very short, and for that reason, um, I'm going to also include tonight a, an additional uh, uh, paragraph or two from a, another well-known commentator by the name of um, uh, Richard Spurlock, and he's done an excellent commentary to the Book of Galatians that. Um, dovetails what I'm saying in my own commentary. So we're going to read mine tonight, and then if we have time, we'll jump over to, to uh, Rick Spurlock's as well. So we're picking up my notes near the bottom of page 73, if you've got the PDF document uh, printed out, or if you've got it pulled up on your computer. Those of you who are in the class with me tonight, just follow along on your screen, and you should have it pulled up there before you. Let's start with works of the law. And I've got the word the in brackets there, because we don't have to really say works of the law, we could just say works of law. Actually, let me pause for a moment. Before I get started, I need to prime you, the listener, for um, what, we're going about to, what we're about to be discussing. Essentially, consider this. If the goal in the first century was justification, and the question is, how does one become justified? And uh, if that's the true question, in other words, if we can just take the word justification and um, translate it as uh, salvation um, in first century uh, in first century terms terminology. 
if we could take the word justification and translate it as salvation, then essentially what the first century Jews were asking themselves was, how does one become saved? How does one become saved? And from a 21st century perspective, uh, if you look at the book of Galatians as Paul answering that question as well, how does one become saved? How does one become a genuine, justified child of God? then um, we're going to gain more what we call practical application from the book of Galatians. So in order to prime you for the study for tonight, consider this example. I was thinking about this just before I got started with the study. Consider that if the question is how does one become justified, consider that there are at least three primary possible answers that we can study as we embark on this particular section. There's the traditional Jewish answer to the question, how does one become justified? That's one possibility. There's um, the historic uh, Christian answer to that question, how does one become justified? And we're looking at this through the lens of the historic book of Galatians. And then there's actually, surprisingly, there's actually... Paul's answer. And we're going to find that of these three choices, the Jewish answer, the Christian answer, and Paul's answer, we're going to find that there's a little bit of overlap, but we're going to find that there's not uh, consistency among the three answers. So let me just put them before you real quick. Bear with me, and then we'll jump into my study. From the historical perspective of Paul's day, so we'll start with the Jewish answer first, the question of how does one become justified. Essentially, the problem was... uh, People who aren't justified want to join the group of the justified, the group of the righteous, the justified, the righteous. And the question of how does one become righteous or how does one become a justified person was seen through the lens of covenant membership. So the question of how does one become righteous was answered by one becomes righteous by becoming a Jew or by being born Jewish, by joining the covenant people of Israel, which is all Jews, comprised of all Jews. From the first century Jewish perspective, all of Israel was a Jewish Israel. All Israel shared a place in the world to come. We're going to see that that's a quote from one of the popular uh, sayings of their day. All Israel shares a place in the world to come. And the word Israel there implied Jewish Israel. So the question from their perspective was, how does one become righteous? The answer was, be a Jew. So that was their answer. All right. The, um, the, uh, uh, in other words, the, the, the problem well, if we if we frame it in this if if we um, form it in this way, problem, um, lack of covenant membership, solution, become a Jew, something like that. That's the first century Jewish perspective. Now let's turn to the historic Christian perspective. Oddly enough, the historic Christian church believed that the problem was that people were keeping Torah to become saved, and so in their perspective, the problem was. Torah, right? Keeping Torah to become saved. That was how they formulated the problem part of their equation. And the solution was get rid of Torah and have faith in Jesus. Essentially, that's their solution. Get rid of Torah because that's a, that's a wrong way of trying to become saved and embrace Jesus. That's the correct way of becoming saved. So their formulation of, of the book of Galatians problem plus solution was problem, Torah, for salvation, solution, Jesus for salvation. In other words, um, um, uh, toss the Torah and keep Jesus, embrace Jesus. So it's important to understand that their solution, historic Christianity's solution, includes getting rid of the Torah. Because in their eyes, part of the problem was the Torah's 
inability to save a person, the Torah's inability to make a person righteous. So again, it's a, it's extremely important to understand that that's the historic Christian perspective on the problem and solution. Now, what's Paul's perspective? Interestingly enough, most of you listening to my commentary to me, to, tonight would, would assume that Paul's position should be identical to the Christian solution because most Christians believe that their perspective is accurate. But as we uncover um, right, the writings of Paul and we corroborate his information against the historic writings that survived through the uh, centuries, in other words, the historic Jewish writings, along with the early first Christian writings, the patristic writings, we're going to find that actually Paul's problem and solution aren't exactly what the church says they are. Instead, Paul's problem is that, uh, or Paul, the way Paul formulates the problem is that covenant membership hinges on ethnicity. It's similar to the, the Jewish uh, version of the problem. In other words, problem, ethnicity, is not possible. I'm sorry. Uh, covenant membership and righteousness are not possible without ethnicity, without Jewish ethnicity, and so their formulation of the problem is similar to the Jewish view. That's what Paul's perspective is. Is is that uh, that's the problem? That's at least that's how he formulates the problem. And the solution, instead of getting rid of Torah and embracing Jesus. The solution actually is simply embrace Jesus. He doesn't have to throw out the Torah. So Paul's solution is actually different than the historic solution. See what I'm saying? The historic Christian church says that the solution is to jettison Torah and embrace Jesus. But Paul's solution doesn't involve jettisoning the Torah. It doesn't involve getting rid of the Torah. Because Paul doesn't see the Torah as part of the problem. Therefore, he doesn't have to include it as part of his solution. See my point? Paul's um, view of the problem in the first century is similar to the first century view. In other words, they were leveraging the wrong object of faith. They were hope, putting their hope in something that they shouldn't have. So, And that becomes very important for our practical application for this reason. And this is the reason why I'm stressing this. If we go with the historic Christian view today, that the solution is to get rid of Torah, then essentially what we end up with is a law-free gospel and a law-free sanctification. We, we end up with a, a life of, of the life of a Christian involve, involving um, freedom from the law, freedom from, from the uh, covenant of Moses, freedom from the obligation to uh, keep uh, any ceremonies of the law. This would include Sabbath, circumcision, food laws, uh, festivals, wearing of tzitzit, putting a mezuzah on your door, things like that. All of those things get set aside under the Christian solution. And that forms a problem for much of the theology of the rest of the New Testament that we read about, especially when we find that the uh, the Jewish people in the first century were still keeping the Torah even after they came to Messiah. Go back and read Acts 21 very carefully again. So I find it important to um, challenge the traditional Christian prevailing view of the solution to the problem in the book of Galatians for that very reason. In other words, I think it's better to allow Paul to speak for himself and to simply explain to us that the solution to the problem is not to um, to turn away from Torah and embrace Jesus, but rather to embrace Jesus and continue to embrace Torah as well. Not embracing Torah as a means of salvation, because it was never given that way. Rather, embracing Torah because it is the covenant obligation it is our obligation as covenant members. It is incumbent upon us as good standing covenant members in Israel to follow after the 
um, covenants of Israel. So I'm stressing all of that because of that primary difference. If you visit your traditional Christian church today, as a belabor at this point for one last moment, if you visit your traditional Christian church, you're going to find a noticeable absence of, um, of teachings on keeping the Torah. And if you visit your traditional Messianic congregation, this would include the Torah communities, then you're going to find a noticeable um, presence of keeping Torah. And so we have two strong opinions there, and I'm, and I'm of the opinion that the better way to understand uh, scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is to understand that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way of salvation. But in addition... We do not have to abandon Torah in order to embrace Jesus. The Torah and Jesus are not diametrically opposed. They do not compete with one another. In fact, they complement one another. Jesus empowers us to keep the Torah. It's the power of Messiah within us that enables us to actually walk into the Torah and to fulfill its righteous requirements the way that God envisioned it from day one. So, that being said, let's jump into my study and um, see what we've got. Bottom of page 73, works of the law. <clears throat> Give me one moment here. I just need to jump around through some screens. Okay, there we go. Hope all my students can still see the screen. All right, here's what we've got. Here's what I write. Works of the law. In sections 2 and 3, we shifted from our study of circumcision and began to dig into the social-religious background of Paul's famous phrase, works of the law. What we learned, especially from Qumran's 4Q MMT document, as well as from the surviving rabbinic literature, is that works of the law is not merely a description of works, the way the church describes it, merit theology. What Shaul is really talking about when he employs the Greek phrase ergo namu, translated as deeds slash works of the law, is in, actually, in actuality a technical phrase that the Judaisms of Paul's day employed to speak of the socio-religious and ethnic boundary markers that separated Jews from Gentiles. I might also add that they undergirded covenant membership and group sectarianism among Jews. So it seems that works of law function had carried two functions. It was some type of boundary-defining law or rule or perspective or ideal or concept. And when it cut boundaries between two concepts, sometimes the the boundary was between Jew and Gentile in the broader perspective, but sometimes in a smaller limited perspective or scope, then it was a boundary between Jew and Jew. So it just separated groups, uh, kind of the way um, uh, group policies or um, church church policies uh, separate uh, groups from groups today, kind of, um, what do we say, denominational boundaries, things like that. So let's keep reading. Indeed, the prevailing view of the sages of the first century held to the common belief that Jewish Israel and Jewish Israel alone shared a place in the world to come. And this phrase, all Israel shares a place in the world to come, that's lifted directly from the Mishnah Tractate Sanhedrin 10.1, um, which is essentially, uh, it forms a kind of a maxim in Judaism in Paul's day. And uh, this phrase, all Israel shares a place in the world to come, it formed the basis, part of the basis, behind the idea that um, it's Jews and only Jews who are saved, because that phrase, world to come, refers to um, the age that you inherit after you die. In other words, what Christians would call heaven. And we all know from Christian theology that you don't get into heaven unless you're saved. So, essentially, the Jewish people were believing that because we're Jewish, because we're Jewish Israel, we're going to make it into heaven. And that quote itself, 
references Isaiah 60, verse 21. And we looked at that actually um, last week when we talked about, um, uh, not, well, was it last week? It was the week before uh, where we talked, where we were in the section on um, uh, Shomer Mitzvot to our observance. So let's keep reading. Thus, in, in their way of thinking, speaking of the first century Jews, in their way of thinking, if a non-Jew, read here as a Gentile, wished to enter into Hashem's covenant blessings and promises, such a person had to convert to Judaism first, right? They had to take on legal Jewish status, which then granted covenant membership. See how that worked? It was the, it was the, um, it was the recognition of the ethnicity that leveraged covenant membership in the eyes of the Jewish people. And once that took place, once that was out of the way, once a Gentile became a Jew, watch this, then and only then could that new Jew exercise, quote, maintenance, end quote, of existing covenant membership by ongoing loyalty and obedience to the Torah. See how that works? In essence, it was that group membership was maintained by keeping the Torah. It wasn't attained by keeping the Torah. See how that, that is a huge difference, the way I just described it. It's a huge difference from the way the historic Christian church formulates the problem and the solution. Remember what I said earlier? The historic Christian church believes that the problem was that people in the first century, Jews and Gentiles, were trying to keep Torah to become saved. And therefore, the solution in their eyes, the solution in the eyes of the historic Christianities of today, is that we need to take Torah out of the picture because that's the that's the problem clouding your eyes. That's that's the thing that's tripping you up, trying to you know fooling you into believe, believe thinking that you can keep it to be saved. Because that's the problem. If we take that out of the picture and instead insert Jesus into the equation, then Jesus becomes the solution, but it's only Jesus minus the Torah that becomes the solution. See how that works? It's because the historic Christianities of today believed that the people in the first century were wielding Torah to become covenant members, that they take Torah out of the picture as part of their solution. But I don't think that's the best way, that, don't, that doesn't seem to be a best practices um, way of reading through Paul's writings. Instead... If we see it as the Torah was not the means of becoming a covenant member, rather the Torah was given to existing covenant members, then essentially you don't find that the Torah needs to be taken out of the picture as part of the solution. To be sure, as I say in my commentary, this concept of covenant membership driven by ethnicity and Torah ob obedience functioning as kind of maintenance or... Um, um, uh, uh, what do we say? Um, not just maintenance, but helping to s segregate groups against groups. This concept is actually one of the primary arguments delineated in the letter to the Galatians, as we're going to see here. So keep 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 following along with me, and I think you'll see this played out. The problem, really, that we encounter when we read through the book of Galatians, when we um, when we uh, study it through the lens of the hypothesis that I'm um, postulating tonight about. Uh, covenant membership being driven by ethnicity and things like that, is that in order for the Gentiles to join Israel through this method, they have to go through this man-made conversion policy. But the problem is that for Shaul, no such man-made conversion policy existed in Scripture. See the point? That can't be the solution to the problem in Paul's eyes because it's not scriptural. 
in order for the solution to be a valid solution to the problem in the first century of how does one become a covenant member, how does one become righteous, how does one become saved, in order for it to be a valid solution, Paul has to be able to locate the solution from within the existing scriptures that were given to Israel. See my point? And so Paul is going to go back through the, his own Bible to find the solution to the problem that the first century Jews were faced with, that the first century Gentiles were faced with. And so in Paul's eyes, conversion was not part of the solution because it was not part of Scripture. And that's what made it a big problem. What is the, pro, or what is the solution? Uh, let's keep reading. By contrast, Shaul taught most assuredly that Gentiles were grafted into the remnant of Israel the same way that Abraham was counted as righteous by God in Breshit, which is Genesis chapter 15. And what do we read there? Speaking of Abraham, he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So therefore, from Paul's perspective, the solution to the problem was faith in the promised word of the Lord, viz. Faith in Yeshua, who is the word of the Lord, the word made flesh that we read about in John chapter 1. Thus, the original Greek phrase that we encounter in, for works of the law, ergo uh, namu, uh, it actually has a Hebrew counterpart, which is ma'aseh ha Now, what meaneth ma'aseh ha Well, this phrase, ma'aseh ha in Hebrew, is actually found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the DSS. It uses this phrase as well. I have a footnote in my commentary at number 61 that um, shows that I lifted uh, that from the Dead Sea Scrolls 4QMMT section C, 25 through 32, if you want to go back and read that on your own in English. This particular phrase from the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, uh, particularly those manuscripts that we've now come to refer to as uh, this phrase, works of law, actually refers to, quote, some of the precepts of the Torah. In other words, it's not the whole Torah, it's just parts of the Torah. And it's those parts that were adjudicated by each sectarian halakha, each sectarian group policy. And these particular group policies were implemented by whichever various community wielded the most influence over any particular group. In other words, um, from the uh, Dead Sea Scroll perspective, we have a group of um, so, yeah, we have a, group, a collection of writings that were um, written for the Essenes, right, for that particular community. And so the group policy that was governing that group applied to that group. It was for that group, it was by that group, and it applied to that group, and it helped separate that group from the other groups. Again, kind of this um, denominational concept in view, where if you have membership in one group and you go visit another group, um, the, the second group can identify you based on your halakha, based on your group policy, based on your um, lifestyle, based on the, the, the way you follow Torah, the, what, the, what separates you f from the other group. Make sense? Okay. So that's one of the ways that works of the law shows up historically in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that kind of helps us to form our opinion of this term since it's otherwise noticeably absent anywhere else in the Torah. In other words, works of the law almost seems as if Paul just plucked it out of the air, Aragon Namu. What does that mean, Aragon Namu? You know, it's, it's almost like he made it up. So until we discovered this terminology in the works in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, back in the 50s, um, many Bible commentators <clears throat> were basically scratching their heads. They didn't know what works of the law meant. And that's why we assumed as Christians that it must have meant, must have meant uh, obedience to the law, works of the law. Actually sounds like 
works done in obedience to the law. In other words, it sounds like merit theology. So let's keep reading. To be sure, the common social perspective of first century religious Israel taught that Gentile inclusion into covenant Israel only by way of conversion, read here most often as circumcision, viz. Jewish identity in Galatians 5.2, this conversion was naturally at odds with the true gospel of Gentile inclusion into the community of Israel by faith in Yeshua plus nothing. Right? So that's the, that, that, that paragraph that I just read there. Let me highlight it for those of you who are in the class. That paragraph right there essentially is, in my understanding, a primary hermeneutic key to understanding the book of Galatians from the social-religious historic perspective that I'm teaching tonight. That comment, that uh, uh, sentence there that I just read, is that when we read Galatians and we read the word circumcision, we, we, we have to... Um, we have to take into account the fact that circumcision was being function was functioning was being used <clears throat> as a kind of a metonym, a stand-in word, a borrow word, a loan word, a circumlocution um, for Jewish identity or for Jewish people, and therefore, when Paul frowns on circumcision like he does in in Galatians chapter five, I Paul tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ will be of no effect. Paul's not particularly frowning on the biblical definition of circumcision as we read about in Genesis, you know, the surgical act, uh, you know, cutting away of the foreskin, so much as he's frowning on or discouraging converting from Gentile to Jew for the ostensible sake of becoming a covenant member or becoming a righteous person or, in other words, becoming saved, trying to be Jewish in order to be saved. That's essentially what Paul means when I tell, Paul tell you that if you become a Jew, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised for the sake of salvation, that Christ will profit you nothing. Obviously, if you're hoping that your circumcision will save you, then Christ is worth nothing to you. Obviously, if you're hoping that your Jewish identity will save you, cause you to be counted as righteous, cause you to be recognized as a covenant member from God's perspective, well then obviously you're missing the point because Jesus is the only way to become a genuine covenant member in God's eyes and in Paul's view. And therefore, circumcision is going to become a barrier for that. Does that make sense? So, that's what that paragraph there means. Let's keep reading. If we understand that quite likely... Shaul's social-religious use of the term circumcision in Galatians 5.2 is actually shorthand for, quote, the man-made ritual that sought to turn Gentiles into Jews before they could be counted as covenant members, end quote. Then, in my opinion, the letter begins to make more sense hebraically and contextually. And that, by the way, is why we focused on circumcision last week. So go back and pick up last week's podcast. Go head on out to iTunes and, and search Google search my name, Hanavi, my last name, H-A-N-A-V-I-Y, in iTunes, and you should be able to pull up my Galatians commentaries and listen to last week's, and you'll get a, a snapshot of, of uh, circumcision through that light. Let's keep reading. I think we're going to be able to finish this section on works of the law tonight, and that way we'll leave room for me to look at uh, Rick Spurlock's commentary as well. So therefore, in my opinion, works of the law as a religious slogan in Paul's day appears to have focused, this is the, the, to the best as I can understand, it appears to have focused primarily on the way Torah and Jewish identity serve to distinctly separate and elevate Jewish nationalism above all other social expressions of what was deemed righteous in God's eyes. In other words, Jews felt that they had an exclusive audience with God based essentially on the fact that they were the elect 
and that they were elected as Jews, that they were elected as Israel. In other words, they were elected as Jewish Israel. So basically the first century view was that God was the God of the Jews only. The Holy Spirit was reserved for Jewish people only. Covenant membership was reserved for Jews only. And therefore the Torah was a document for Jews only. See how that all works together? It was a Jewish-only mindset. And it is that Jewish blindness that kept them from seeing the true freedom, the true message of Jesus including the Gentiles into Israel. Make sense? Understand? All right. Let's, let's see how another popular Christian author spells this out for us. Dr. James D.G. Uh, Dunn, uh, who in my opinion has spearheaded um, much of the proper understanding of Paul's writings. If I were to recommend one single author for your average Christian or um, for your average Jew or Messianic person, I would recommend either James D.G. Dunn or uh, Tim Haig. And, and you notice I can't really recommend just one. I really have to recommend the both. But in this case, we're just going to quote from Dr. Dunn, uh, since he has really been, he's kind of been at this, I think, a little longer than Tim Haig. Um, Dr. Dunn writes in an essay uh, from uh, his now famous New Perspective on Paul essay. Um, here's what Dr. Dunn writes, quote, we're near the bottom of page 74. Paul has no intention here of denying a ritual expression of faith as in baptism or the Lord's Supper. Here again, we should keep the precise limitations of Paul's distinction between faith in Christ and works of law before us. What he is concerned to exclude, and, and Dr. Dunn's working kind of from this idea of, of the uh, Galatians 2.16 uh, verse that we read about, what Paul is concerned to exclude is the racial, not the ritual expression of faith. See that? It is nationalism which he denies, not activism. Whatever their basis in the scriptures... These works of the law had become identified as indices of Jewishness, as badges betokening race and nation. Inevitably, inevitably so when race and religion are so inextricably intertwined as they were and are in Judaism. What Jesus has done by his death, this is still Dr. Dunn speaking, what Jesus has done by his death and resurrection in Paul's understanding is to free the grace of God in justifying from its nationalistically restrictive clamps for a broader experience that is beyond the circumcised Jew and a fuller expression that is beyond concern for ritual purity, end quote. You can see footnote number 62. I lifted that from James D.G. Dunn, the new perspective on Paul, revised edition, and that was uh, put out in, in uh, 2008 from that particular paper. I think you can actually go on and purchase Dr. Dunn's um, complete commentary to the book of Galatians, and you'll catch more of this information. In fact, when we read through um, Rick Spurlock's commentary here in a bit, we're going to see that uh, Rick does the same thing that I do. He pulls a lot of quotes from Dr. Dunn because he realizes the significance of changing the paradigm of the way that we view the book of Galatians as Christians. In other words, viewing it through the lens of this idea that works of law um, carried with it this idea of a, of a strong Jewish nationalism that undergirded everything uh, that they understood about their scriptures. So let's keep reading, because I, as I, like I said, I think we're going to make it through the uh, end of this section tonight. We just have this um, paragraph right here. Uh, so let's read that. Continuing in my commentary, I write, 
by focusing on a test case in uh, Galatians, uh, in this case we uh, focused on Galatians 2.16 um, in the uh, topical sections, we were able to ascertain that in essence when Paul has Gentile inclusion into Israel in mind, then this phrase, works of law, ergonomu, referred to those sometimes locally autonomous group requirements that were being imposed on non-Jews as outlined and delegated by each individual group functioning under the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day. Um, and, and in order to understand that, you have to recall that the Qumran community has unique works of the law that necessarily differed from some of the other Jewish communities' works of the law. Now, let me, let me explain this phrase real quick, because this is a bit confusing to some. Essentially, if you were in Paul's day, if you were, if you were to imagine that the Judaisms of Paul's day functioned similar to the Christianities of today, where we had different denominations as you went around, uh, you know, went from place to place, you encountered a different denominational form of Judaism. In essence, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, and let's say you encountered uh, a denomination in Israel, you might find that their works of the law, their group policies, was maybe a bit longer, maybe it involved a bit more Torah, maybe it involved a bit more um, turning away from your previous Gentile or Roman or Greek affiliations and embracing the Jewish lifestyle of Jerusalem. So that might be one form of works of the law. But if you were to, say, travel maybe... Uh, across the Mediterranean and over into, um, say, Italy, where there were Jewish communities there, the uh, Jewish communities that were farther removed from, say, the temple in Jerusalem, farther removed from Jerusalem itself, then you might find a works of the law uh, that was a little more relaxed. Maybe those Jewish communities, those denominations of Judaism of the first century, might allow for a little more freedom uh, within your Jewish expression. You still had to become a Jew, they still upheld the Jewish-only policies of, of uh, covenant membership under their understanding. But as far as um, uh, breaking ties with your former uh, Greek-slash-Roman affiliations, you might be allowed a bit more freedom because they were probably a little more, little more liberal, is the point I'm trying to make. So that's, that's what we probably have to um, uh, allow for when we're understanding Paul's work to the law, is that... In, in the region of Galatia, which was, I believe, modern-day Turkey today, which is a little farther removed from Jerusalem, it's possible that their works of the law, their group policies, their halakha, their short list of do's and don'ts that they are imposing on, on, um, on incoming uh, covenant members as well as existing covenant members, their, their, their works of law was probably a little more relaxed, a little more liberal than, say, the works of the law in Jerusalem, and and especially the works of the law that we read about in the Qumran section, the the Qumrans were probably the ultra orthodox, the uh, the 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 super strict. In other words, um, the the uh, we could almost identify the Qumrans as the radical Jews, the radical um, uh, form of Judaism that were super strict, ultra sectarian. Um, I mean, they separated themselves from the temple. They separated themselves from the Pharisees. They, they really went, went out of their way to be separate, is the, is the point I'm trying to stress. And if you were a Gentile and you were wishing to join the Qumran community, the, the, the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll community, then you'd probably end up encountering a, a works of the law that was extremely, um, extremely strict, extremely uh, non-liberal extremely uh, uh, 
uh, independent. You see the point I'm trying to make? So works of law, when, when seen through that lens, helps us to get a better idea of how we interact with um, the Torah and the way Jews walk out the Torah and Gentiles who became Jews, how they walked out the Torah, but depending on the community that they belong to. Okay, so let's keep reading. When it came to works of the law for Jews, however, again, what we discovered, remember, there's, there's basically two views that I'm postulating here. Works of the law in respect to uh, Gentiles, in other words, when Jews were applying this phrase to Gentiles, and works of the law when Jews were applying this phrase to other Jews. Make sense so far? So, when it came to works of the law for Jews, we discovered that Paul, mo uh, we discovered that Paul most likely had obedience to the Torah done for the sake of keeping Jews separate from Gentile sinners, and ostensibly for making one's maintaining one's righteous place in the covenant people in mind. And I have a footnote to number sixty-three that you can recall in Galatians 2.15, which we read in our liturgy, where Paul reminds Peter that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Notice the line of demarcation between Jews and Gentiles. We ourselves are Jews by birth. In other words, our ethnicity that was determined, our, our, our covenant position was determined by uh, the, the, the family clans that we were born into. And I talked last week about how ethnicity includes this idea of um, nationality, ethnicity pulls into it, um, family associations, um, uh, cultural affiliations, religious affiliations. But it also unwittingly, when we're talking about ethnicity, it also unwittingly pulls in race sometimes. <clears throat> so that ethnicity and race aren't really the same thing, but they uh, they move in, in, the, in some of the same circles. So that um, certain racial groups oftentimes have similar ethnic um, qualities about them. Make sense? And so that it's sometimes difficult to differentiate between someone's race and someone's ethnicity because they're so closely attached to one another. There's, there's, they, they, um, they remind us of one another. And so to, to say that one is a Jew is to say that one keeps Torah, at least from a first century perspective, because Torah was closely associated with the Jewish people. But it was also closely tied to birth. It was closely tied to to the fact that Jewish people were born with their ethnicity. They were born into Jewish families. Obviously, a Jewish man and a Jewish woman gave birth to a Jewish child. And that's why part of their ethnicity, their identity, was tied to their race, as it were. But I don't want you to hear me saying that Jewish is, Judaism is a race. It really isn't. That's a myth. That's a myth um, postulated by Hitler. He figured that if he could figure out who the Jewish race was, maybe he could wipe them off the map. Well, it didn't work because you can never get rid of the people of God. Amen? Amen. Let's keep reading. So, um, works of the law, when seen through the lens of Jewish people, seem to not necessarily talk about how to get into the covenant, how to get into uh, covenant membership, how to become a righteous person. Works of the law then seem to describe or seem to um, uh, focus on maintenance of existing covenant membership at least from their perspective. So as far as the equality, I say that as I keep reading my commentary, so as far as the, we're right here, for those of you who are in, my, in class right now. So as far as the equality of both people groups and Messiah is concerned, both Jews and Gentiles, Paul's, Paul, who was the missionary to the Gentiles, he had to defend what we call the correct Torah viewpoint in his letters, uh, that that were addressed to the churches in Galatia, specifically chapter 5 in Galatians. 
And as well, we're going to read about that in Ephesians if we ever get to it. Um, Ephesians also talks about Jews and Gentiles being one new man. And that language that Paul's uh, using, one new man, has this idea that Jew and Gentile are brought together under the banner of Messiah, under the righteousness of Messiah, under the um, approval of God's uh, way of making a person righteous. And therefore, Jew and Gentile are co partners, they're co-covenant members, they're what Paul, what Paul would say um, fellow heirs, they're fellow heirs with one another. That's the focus in Ephesians. Circumcision, as I conclude here, circumcision was therefore directly related to works of the law in Paul's writings, right, the phrase circumcision, in that circumcision was a shorthand way for Paul to talk about, quote, conversion to Judaism, slash being or becoming a Jew, slash maintaining covenant membership via Torah observance, end quote. I know that's a lengthy statement there, but that's my way of paraphrasing circumcision as we encounter it in Paul. Basically, in my, my estimation, I recommend that when you're reading through Paul and you encounter phrases like circumcision or works of law, ergonamu, or under the law, which we're going to get to uh, a little later on, um, or if you encounter the word Torah, the word namas in the Greek, or, or Torah in the Hebrew, whenever you encounter s- words that seem to be um, what we might call uh, uh, prominent words in the passage, key words uh, that form parts of key chair passages in Paul, you probably don't want to make an assumption that what you read in one place is what it means in another place. I think it's best to allow each word to be understood from context. And that means that sometimes circumcision is going to mean one thing in one verse and mean possibly something slightly different, maybe a nuanced difference or a contextual difference in another verse or another chapter. And that's what I mean. That's why I have to translate circumcision as this lengthy, long, drawn-out, quote, conversion to Judaism slash being or becoming a Jew slash maintaining covenant membership via Torah observance. See how that works? It's both of them. All right, let's keep reading. Once again, we must remind ourselves that even though circumcision was historically misused and misapplied as Jewish identity, and we read about that last week, there is no reason for us today, us 21st century Christians, to continue in such a misunderstanding. Let me just pause and let that sink in. It's all too often that when you encounter Christian discussions on circumcision, that the popular view is that circumcision has been done away with in Christ, it's been relaxed in Jesus, it's been set aside by Paul, and therefore we no longer have to concern ourselves with it as Gentiles, as Gentile Christians. And that, in my opinion, is an unfortunate perspective. It's unfortunate because it robs the Jewish people of a of a, an important covenant sign that God gave Israel, and to be sure, it robs the scriptures of an important covenant um, sign that God gave to all of his people. So, And it helps, again, to remind ourselves that circumcision was historically misused by the Jewish people first. But that doesn't mean that the Christians today have to continue to misunderstand it or misuse it. Let's conclude here. Nor is there any reason for the emerging Torah communities, the Jews and Gentiles who are embracing the law of Moses, is there's no reason for them to shrink back from the Torah that God has clearly given for us to obey, provided we maintain our primary identity, not necessarily as Jewish or Gentile, but as that of one firmly grounded in Mashiach. And on this last sentence, I have to highlight the fact that it's all too sad 
that in today's Torah communities, it's it's very vogue, it's very popular to teach that the Torah is essentially still a Jewish document. If you visit many Messianic congregations around the, particularly the United States, you're going to find that many of them hold to the popular notion that the Torah is for Jews only. That nonsense started way back in Paul's day that the Torah is for Jews only. And therefore, if the Gentiles wish to become covenant members and to enjoy the blessings that the Torah spelled out for covenant members, then the Gentiles had to become Jews first in order to, be, to enjoy Torah participation. That's the lie of the first century. People, why are we still listening to that garbage? Why are we still swallowing that lie from the adversary that the Torah is for Jews only? The Torah is not for Jews only. The Torah is not for Jews only. Why? Because God is not the God of the Jews only. We read that in Romans 3, verse uh, what, 28, 29, 30, 31, somewhere around there. God is not the God of the Jews only. God is the God of Jews and Gentiles, particularly of those who name the name of God through his son Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen? It is these people, Jews and Gentiles, brought into genuine covenant membership via the blood of Yeshua, who are filled with the Ruach HaKodesh that is spoken about in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31. These promises given to Israel of old prophesied that the Spirit of God would write the Torah of God on the heart of genuine covenant members. And who are the covenant members? They are Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. And we know that that's true because that's how Paul describes us in the book of Ephesians. And that's a better way to understand the book of Galatians. So, we'll leave off there for now as far as our commentary to um, my commentary to Galatians. Next week, uh, we'll pick up our study again with this paragraph entitled Commental Nomism and Justification. And But for now, we still have about 10 minutes left in uh, the hour. Let's turn now over real quick to uh, Rick Spurlock's commentary to the book of Galatians. I know personally that some of the students who are... Um, who are studying along with me, have also been exposed to um, Rick's commentary. And Rick and I have been in uh, correspondence with one another for a few years. Um, I've never met him personally, but uh, I, I, I count him among one of my friends since I, I've met him via email, and we've, we've dialogued. Uh, I, I attended his, uh, uh, his Galatians, I'm sorry, his uh, Hebrews commentary a few years back when he offered that online. But um, he wrote an excellent commentary to the book of Galatians as well that's available on his website. Um, I don't have the URL for me right now. I apologize. If I find that, I'll, I'll tell it to you later. But uh, right now, what I've got is I downloaded a copy of his Galatians commentary. And on page, at the top of page 85, he speaks about this idea of works of law. And so I thought it would be nice to include his view of works of law right alongside mine. Speaking of works of law, here's what Rick Spurlock has to say. We can start our analysis of this phrase from the traditional perspective, that is, that works of the law is a phrase that most naturally means deeds or actions which the law requires. But this does not fit with the Judaism's view of the Torah in the first century. Paul's argument would have found universal acceptance, so it would have been a wasted point. In other words, to say that works of the law refers to simply deeds of the law. That's what it means by a wasted point. Paul must be arguing against something else. And then notice here that um, uh, Rick uh, Spurlock actually quotes from Dr. Dunn, just like I do. Uh, um, 
Dr. James Dunn frames the argument this way, and then Rick has a lengthy quote from Dr. Dunn. And I'm not going to read the entire quote. I'm just going to read the highlighted part. On the contrary, the whole of Israel's religion was founded on the axiom that God had chosen Israel as an act wholly undeserved. Membership of the covenant people already presupposed God's gracious election and sustaining favor. It did not have to be earned, nor does the phrase itself denote human deeds of meritorious quality. What then was Paul denying? And that's a quote lifted from Dr. Dunn's book there to the uh, Commentary of Galatians. And then uh, Dr. Dunn goes on to quote, and this is, again, lift, this is uh, included in uh, Rick Spurlock's commentary. So this is Dr. Dunn within uh, Rick Spurlock, quote, Works of the law, then, would probably reflect this factionalism, speaking of the Jewish factionalism, and the common concern within Second Temple Judaism to draw the lines of demarcation around covenant righteousness as clearly as possible. And then, again, Dr. Dunn goes on to say, uh, again, this is quoting from Rick Spurlock, uh, quote, in the DSS, speaking of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, speaking of works of law, it was precisely the covenanter's deeds of the law, the ergonamu, or the ma'asehatorah in Hebrew, it was precisely the covenanter's deeds of law which had to be tested in order to check whether his membership of the community could be sustained. And so Rick Spurlock goes on to comment, quote, Dr. Dunn makes the case that works of the laws used in, in Dead Sea Scrolls document is not a reference to the particulars of the written Torah, but rather a reference to the unique application of those laws that further define the sect against other sects of Judaism. And that's basically what I said in my commentary. In other words, the Qumran community had a different set of works of the law than did the Pharisees. And I talked about uh, how that if we view the first century Jews as, as kind of broken down into denominations, kind of like the way we have Christianity today, different denominational <clears throat> um, communities have their own sets of rules. Same things going on here. And that's what Rick's trying to bring out in his commentary. Uh, Rick goes on to say, These works of the law are the man-made methods of working out the Torah's requirement. Dr. Dunn adds, in other words, and this is done from within Spurlock again, quote, In other words, at Qumran, works of the law denoted a sectarian understanding of the law and denoted, indeed, the sect's distinctive understanding and practice of the law, that understanding the practice of the law which marked it out from others, including Jews. Dunn goes on to say, quote, works of the law there, uh, speaking of the Qumran document, was probably used initially in a polemic context to denote particularly those obligations of the law which were reckoned especially crucial in the maintenance of covenant righteousness. And that's a very high, uh, crucial term in my opinion, the maintenance of covenant righteousness in the maintenance of an individual Jew status within the covenant. So we've got these words maintenance, and maintenance, right? And then uh, Rick Spurlock goes on to conclude for this section, Paul's usage of the words justify and righteousness fit quite well into this usage of the phrase works of law, which if used this way, to speak of the sectarian view of covenant membership, etc., if used this way, dramatically supports Paul's main concern with the Galatians, which is, quote, this is Spurlock again, that they, the Gentiles in Galatians, that they might be persuaded by others to attempt to gain covenant status by joining Israel through ritual conversion. Sounds surprisingly like my own commentary. Yes, it does. It is this man-made attempt to do what Messiah has already accomplished, in essence, joining them, the Gentiles, to the covenant community by faith in Messiah's finished work. That is the impetus for Paul's letter. 
end quote. So did you guys catch it there? Essentially, me and Rick Spurlock are, are saying the same thing, and that's that um, in order to better understand Paul's letter from a historical perspective and to appreciate the social-religious challenges that Paul was presenting his own readers with, and to then launch from that understanding into a practical application for today's 21st century modern Christians. In order to do all of that, we have to reckon with this idea, the reality, that works of the law probably doesn't merely indicate merit theology the way that the historic Christians were supposing it does. And I'll conclude with this. I'll come full circle and start where I left, uh, start, uh, uh, end where I started. If, in those three views that I presented at the beginning of my commentary, if the problem in the first century from the Jewish perspective was that only Jews can become covenant members and the solution for Gentiles was to make Gentiles into Jews, then... We, if we read through Paul's letter that way, then we could understand that um, there would really be no problem. There'd be no problem for Gentiles to join Israel by becoming Jewish, because then they would get the Torah as existing covenant members. So, problem: you're not a Jew. You're not a Jew. Solution: become a Jew. If you want to become righteous, if you want to become a covenant member, become a Jew. That's from the Jewish perspective. The historic Christian church says, no, that's not the way we see Paul's letter to the book of Galatians. The problem from our perspective is that the people in the first century, Jews and Gentiles alike, were trying to keep Torah to become saved or keep Torah to become covenant members. And therefore, since the problem was that they were trying to keep Torah to become saved, the solution becomes get rid of Torah, turn away from Torah, jettison Torah, abandon Torah, its Old Testament, embrace the New Testament, embrace Jesus alone for your means of salvation, and you'll be fine. You'll be saved if you embrace Jesus because uh, embracing Torah can't be done anyway. So, the historic Christian perspective, problem, keeping Torah to become saved, solution, keep Jesus to become saved or, or embrace Jesus to become saved. And then if we have Paul's perspective, which is essentially the same as the Jewish perspective in the, in the problem part, whereas Paul understood that the Jewish people of his day were leveraging Jewish identity as the problem for the Gentiles. In other words, problem from Paul's perspective, Gentiles were not Jews. However, he saw the Jewish perspective, but didn't have to necessarily agree with it in his solution. Here's the careful distinction. From Paul's perspective, the problem wasn't really necessarily that the Gentiles weren't Jews. The problem really was that the Gentiles weren't believers in Jesus. So Paul's solution is different from the first century Jewish solution. The solution in Paul's mind is similar to the Gentile, I'm sorry, similar to the Christian position. However, it differs in this one crucial point. Instead of embracing Jesus, instead of abandoning Torah and embracing Jesus, Paul's solution is simply to embrace Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't say anything about abandoning Torah. So, we got those three views and those three possibilities in view. Do we leave the Torah behind and embrace Jesus? Or do we embrace Jesus and keep the Torah? Or do we, like the first century Jews, abandon our ethnicity as Gentiles and embrace uh, Jewish ethnicity? Well, we, I think we can already tell that the, that, that the Jewish view is, uh, the Jewish solution is not right. It's not applicable because it's not scriptural. There's nothing in scripture that tells Gentiles to abandon their Gentile heritage and embrace a Jewish ethnicity, a Jewish heritage, so that they can be supposedly counted as righteous among the people of God, so they can supposedly be uh, join the covenant members. 
covenant community. We know that that doesn't work because that's not what Abraham did. That's not what Moses taught. That's not what Joshua and the elders taught. That's not what any of the prophets prophesied about. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what any of the apostles, the disciples after him taught. So we know that's not what Paul would teach as we work our way up through the Bible. Instead, it seems to be that the best way to view Scripture is to view it through the lens of the way Paul described it, which is embrace Jesus as a Jew, embrace Jesus as a Gentile, and therefore the covenant membership that you so um, desperately uh, desire will then become yours as you embrace the Messiah of Israel. You become a member of Israel. You join Israel. You become a member of the remnant of Israel. And therefore the document that God gave to Israel at Exodus chapter 20, Mount Sinai, becomes yours. It's very simple. If you become an Israelite, albeit a remnant Israelite, if you become an Israelite, the Torah is yours, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. And that's the solution that I need to tell our modern uh, Torah communities today that are teaching the Torah still for Jews only. What kind of nonsense is that? The Torah is not for Jews only. The Torah is for Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. Why? Because it describes the lifestyle of a redeemed child of God. It describes righteousness for us. It becomes our blueprint for righteous living. It doesn't become the empowerment. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But it becomes the blueprint. It becomes our way of life. It becomes the way in which we walk out this righteousness that we have attained by placing our faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. With that, I'll draw the commentary to a close and dismiss in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live class, stay with me. We'll entertain some, some chat for about the next, say, 10, 15 minutes or so. Okay? Let's close. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study along with the students uh, I know that um, these uh, concepts are challenging, but I think if we um, avail ourselves of your word, I know for a fact that if we um, rely on your spirit and yet also use the tools that you have left for us to use, the scriptures, the historic writings, um, things like that, uh, commentaries from other well-meaning believers, we can come to some better understandings of your words and of the scriptures so that we can make practical applications as communities. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for where we err. Forgive us for, as Christians, for um, not understanding the applicability of Torah uh, as Gentile Christians. Forgive us for uh, turning away from Torah for 2,000 years. Forgive us, Lord, as Torah communities for supposing that the Torah is for Jews only. Forgive us, Lord, as Jews for supposing that Gentiles can't be covenant members. Lord, all of us need your mercy and your grace. None of us have arrived. None of us have all of the answers. None of us have a complete view of truth. We all are in this together, and therefore we all need one another to help us to arrive at a greater understanding of truth. So help us to draw together as a community, as Jews and Gentiles, rallying around the banner of Yeshua, our Messiah, for in Him... He is our true identity. He is the one that we find our complete and lasting covenant membership in. And he is the one that allows us to be declared dikaiosune, righteous in your eyes, Lord. Thank you for the Messiah, Yeshua. For it is in his name that we declare this truth. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, 
serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>